Um, a couple uh, things that we're, uh, we're going to do this morning um, is think about Jesus uh, and, and look at his word and respond. And this, what we're going to talk about this morning, this good news of Jesus Christ is for, for each of us. If you're a Christian here this morning, we need to hear this news. If you're a, uh, not a Christian, a uh, follower of Jesus, then this news, this information that we're going to talk about is for you as well. And, uh, and so, if you have your Bibles, would you open those up this morning to Romans chapter 10? The book of Romans chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible here this morning with you, we, we will have most of these scriptures up here on our screen as well for you to, to follow along. And we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 13 this morning. Now, you, you may have heard of a Frenchman named Philip Petit. Maybe you've heard the story. Maybe you've seen pictures of what he did about 50 years ago. On August 7, 1974, Philip accomplished, he was an accomplished street performer, juggler, tightrope walker. He planned over about a six-year period, secretly and then illegally, with a small team, stepped on a wire that he strung between the World Trade Center's twin towers. He stepped onto a wire that was approximately one inch in diameter, 110 stories in the air. That's about 1,350 feet above the ground. And for 45 minutes, he traversed this, this wire. About eight times he crossed back and forth. He danced on the wire. He actually laid down on the wire. Thousands of people gathered to watch. I mean, helicopters, the news report, everything. It, it was... It, it was quite the feat. He, he was later arrested for the stunt. Uh, he, he poetically wrote this about his, his high-wire acts. He says this, the city has vanished. The world is no longer in motion. Humanity has ceased to exist. There is no notion of around, no over there, certainly no below. The union of altitude and solitude fills me with an arrogant sense of ownership. After all, the sky is my domain. That's some, that's some serious confidence right there. <laughs> Quite the sense of personal grandiose, right? Arrogant ownership in the, I own the sky. Um, now, he obviously made it. He's, he's still alive. And um, we can agree this took some serious skill under pressure to do this. I mean, the, another question would be, what, why would someone want to do this? Tightrope walking is a serious feat. It's very difficult. It, it takes years, a lifetime of training to do anything even close to this. It's so rare, very rarely people do do this or even can do this. I'm not sure about you. I, I haven't walked a one-inch wire, a thousand feet in the air anytime soon. Kids, any, any kids in here? Tightrope walkers? Any tightrope walker desires? Parents? Shut it down. I did some rock climbing recently. Um, I had a harness on with a rope, and I only maybe went 50 feet in the air, and my shoulder still hurts from all of that. So what Philip proved to do, this caliber, this feat, he, he proved it was not impossible. Uh, it, was, it was very difficult, and he was really on the threshold, a balancing act of, on life and death. And our passage that we're going to come to this morning brings us to the message of Easter. It, it speaks about this message of Easter, and it, it describes for us about something that, that's not just difficult, but it is impossible. 
this chasm, this gulf to, that is so impossible to cross that, that no human being can do it in their own efforts, ever has, ever will. And it all has to do with this suspension between life and opportunity uh, from death to life. And in, until Jesus came, this was absolutely impossible. Who came to make this impossible thing possible? And it's, it's what we're celebrating today. It's what we're singing about today, that, that he came to live, to die, and then to rise from the dead so that those who were, were lost, inseparable uh, from God, broken, uh, separated from God, in death, that they could find forgiveness of sins and experience right relationship with God and eternal life with him. But without Jesus, it is impossible. But Jesus came to save. His life as a bridge to make a way for those who were lost, needing saving to bring them into his light. This is what we're celebrating on Easter. This is what we celebrate as Christians. We celebrate each day. It's what we celebrate each Sunday. But we want to think about today, the reality of his saving work this morning. So let's read our passage today, and then we are going to pray. Beginning at verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Join me as we pray. Today, Jesus, we celebrate your, your resurrection, and by your resurrection, you broke open the gates of hell, you destroyed death and sin. Jesus, as you proclaimed, you are the resurrection and the life, and all those who believe in you, though we die, Lord, we will, we will live. And all of those who've come to be united with you in your death Lord, we will also experience the union with you in your resurrection, that it'll be like yours. And so, Lord, this morning as we consider and we think about what it means to be saved, Lord, I I ask this morning that that those of us that that know this news, that have believed on this good news, Lord, you you would amplify in our heart fresh joy and trust and faith, and we would be mesmerized that we get this. And, and for others of us that may not know you, Jesus, would you, would you allow them to hear your good news this morning in a way that they would trust and see? In your name we pray, amen, amen. Well, before we sort of dive in, a little background is important. Uh, Romans 10 is located in a section of chapters, chapters 9 through 11, 
It's really dense. This is a really deep argument. There's been a bunch of books written about this by really smart dudes, and we're not going to go all the way there. But we want to see a little bit about what's happening. The Apostle Paul is writing about God's plan and salvation and the nation of Israel. And he recounts history of God choosing a certain man and promising from his lineage that there would be a great nation, the Jewish people, Israel, and God's covenant promise with them. God gives Israel his law um, through his chosen prophet Moses. And these laws would teach them how they were to relate to God, how they were to be right with God, righteous before God, or justified. And it was to be that through this, this posture of faith in God, they were to obey the laws from faith in who he is. And so out of a heart of trust and faith in God's provision and his righteousness and who he is as their God and they are his people, not by their perfection, not by their ways, that ways they would obey out of faith and trust. And yet Israel slid away from faith, and they, they tried to save themselves by trusting in their own works, they, living by, not by faith in, the, in God, but by faith in themselves to try to make their self-righteous before God. And then as history unfolds, Jesus comes, and he brings this offer of salvation to all people, a covenant relationship to, to all nations. And this sort of flippity-flop sort of happens. The Gentiles, who were not God's people, who were sort of the, bowdy, the baddies, now embrace Jesus in the gospel, and they gain a righteousness or a rightness before God by faith. The opposite is happening. Israel, who's supposed to be the goodies, the righteous people, are trying to, keep, trying to be, find a righteousness by faith, uh, not by faith, but by law, by, law by, by keeping laws, and they can't attain it. So they're zealous for God, but they're zealous without a knowledge of who Jesus is. So this is what we see in, if you look up a little bit in chapter 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Meaning, Jesus becomes the fulfillment of the promises and the fulfillment of the righteousness of God that the law demands by believing in Jesus. So God gives his law to reveal his character, his holiness, his perfection. And when humans stand in contrast to God's holy law, it uncovers the position of man's heart, which is falling short of that perfection. It exposes human weaknesses and human sin and human imperfection, and it reveals that we need a Savior. We can't keep it. We can't do it. We need something outside of ourselves to come to us to transform our hearts, to provide a righteousness that we cannot obtain on our own. So there's a Savior who's needed. There's a, a bridge, a gap so vast, so giant, that we need someone to walk in a perfection of this law and someone to deal with all of this brokenness and all of this sin that humans have brought into the world. I visited a, a science museum recently, and one of the exhibits was on bacteria and fungus growth. So there's this huge wall, and the bacteria wall, and there were all these Petri dishes that kind of looked a little bit like this right here. And under each of these were little, little labels that said cell phone and iPad and chair rail and door handle. The list kind of went on. So somebody had swabbed those locations, maybe somebody's shoe or somebody's cell phone, and they put it in a Petri dish and they just let it grow. That massive black fungus right there, up there, came from something like an iPhone. Yeah, the phone's in your hand right now. Kids, doesn't that look gross up there? I mean, that's on your iPad at home. That's on your doorknob in your room. 
That's pretty nasty, isn't it? Well, this, this is a, as I saw this, as I thought about the picture of sin. It's just, when sin came into the world through their first parents, Adam and Eve, sin broke all of creation. All of it is impacted. All of it is affected. It's, it's everywhere. We may not see it, may not feel it, but it's there. But if we do think and consider it, we know it's there. We feel its presence. And that, kids, that's what is everywhere. It's sin, sin out there, sin in our hearts. The Bible teaches that we're all sinners standing before God in need of saving. Earlier in chapter five or chapter three of Romans, Paul says, There is none righteous. No, not one, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Meaning that all people, referencing the, the Jew or the, the Gentile, wherever you were born, no matter what family you were born to, the ethnicity, what whatever charities you have given to or what good deeds you've done or the success that you have in your life, we, we all have fallen short of the, the holy standard of God's glory. It doesn't matter. And because we each were born into sin and we all have contributed to sin, we each and every one of us deserve God's just punishment for those sins. And therefore, we need saving. We need a rescuer. We need a savior from this So the big question is, how can we be made right with God? How can we be saved? Where our passage shows us this. And we're going to just look at two simple things today. That Jesus came near and made a way to be saved. And we must all and can respond to what he did to be saved. So Easter message is about Jesus. Jesus coming near to make a way to be saved. So look at our our scriptures here this morning. Verse 5, Paul is contrasting the Two ways people attempt to be made right before God. One by keeping laws, by somehow doing something, or by faith in Jesus. So verse 5 says, he says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. We've already sort of considered Israel's history, right? They pursued rightness before God by looking to their own rule keeping, and it demanded perfection. It says, I'm good enough. I am good enough. And we realize we can't. They couldn't. None of us can do that on our own. In contrast, we could be made right before God by faith. Faith in something God has done. This is what verse 6 brings us to. But righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. So proper saving faith, those who could be saved, doesn't say in our heart who can ascend to heaven or who can descend into an abyss. What, is, what does this mean? Well, this is a quote from the Old Testament from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30. And the first part of the chapter warns God's people about if you disobey God's laws, you will be cursed. If you obey God's laws, you will be blessed. And it goes on to say this that this task, which seems to be impossible, how can we do this? How, what, God makes a way. How? Well, there's an answer in verse 6. It says, Lord, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. He will do something in you. He will do a, do a cutting, changing work in you so that you will love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And then God tells them, you can do it. So don't say you can't do it. And then verse 14 in chapter 30 quotes what we just read. But the word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. So, it seems to be saying two different things. Is this impossible, or can you do it? Well, the problem is, Israel thought they could do it in themselves. 
what was impossible they thought they could do on their own. And Israel couldn't save themselves by their own effort. That was the issue. Their works were not enough. They needed faith, faith in God's righteous provision, something he would provide, and to something that God would do in their hearts so that they could love and obey him. And this is the very thing that we find ourselves in. We cannot save ourselves by our own efforts, but by faith in a righteous provision that he gives us, which he does in Jesus, and something that needs to happen inside our hearts so that we can love and follow God. And what does God do? What does he do to make provision to do this? Jesus comes near because he knew we couldn't. So he asks these questions. Can we ascend into heaven? What does that mean? Can we ascend to heaven by our good works, by our merits? No. And we don't have to. Jesus is the one that came down from heaven so we don't have to climb up. Do we need to go into the abyss of death to atone for our sins or find some power to resurrect our dead hearts from the dead? No. Jesus is the one who went down and came up from the abyss of death to pay a penalty so we don't have to. So we have no power to bring ourselves up. We have no power to atone and bring ourselves up from the dead. Jesus does that. So this impossible thing, Paul's trying to help us see, has been accomplished for you. It's not in your power. For us to gain salvation, an abyss was necessary to pay the full penalty for our sins, and a perfect record of righteousness was needed to achieve to gain access to heaven before a holy God. Jesus dealt with death so we don't have to suffer for our sins. Jesus came down with his righteous life so we don't have to try to earn our own. But we try to, we, we try to do this on our own. We try to save ourselves. We, we, all, we all are tempted to try to climb up. We tempt with our own self-efforts. The Bible would talk about what's called legalism. We, we, we try to gain favor and, and uh, access to God by, by our obedience or the things that we do. No, no, no good deeds. There is not enough religious things for us to do that will be that for us. And if we do, it leads to pride and self-righteousness. Or we, we climb down. We are consumed with condemnation and self-loathing. We beat ourselves up and we remind ourselves how horrible and bad we are, and we think that in itself will bring atonement. It could even lead to some sort of self-harm. I'm not good enough. I'm worthless. I deserve pain. In other religions, this is, this is what they would teach, which makes Christianity so different. They, they, you're forced with this foundational principle that if you can get to God, if you can have access to God, you must appease him. You must do something. You must climb up or you must go down in order for you to be acceptable before your God. Jesus came to free us from these vain attempts and these pitfalls. We are, we are, we are to feel the extremes, right? These great heights. We, there's no way we can get that high. We can't do it. There's no way we can do enough to somehow atone we can't go low enough. That's the whole point. We can't do it. So we look away from ourselves. We, we look away from what we can do, and we look by faith in and on Jesus. It's faith on Jesus that saves. And he's the one that comes near to us. We don't have to clamor and fight to get to him. Look at verse 8. What does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth, and it's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. The word that is near, this word of faith that Paul is saying we proclaimed is, is a person. 
It is Jesus Christ. It's by faith on what he did so that we can have his righteousness and his salvation. We see in verse 9, because it is faith on what Jesus is and what Jesus has, Jesus has done and what has Jesus done and who is he. Look at verse 9, kind of embedded in this verse. It says, Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. Who he is and what he's done. Who is he? He is Lord. Over 5,000, about 5,000 times in the Old Testament, that word Lord is used as the proper name of God. Meaning Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He wasn't just a good teacher. He just wasn't another prophet. He is God, the Son of God that came down in the flesh. He took on human form. Author C.S. Lewis wrote, You must make a choice about this reality. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord in God. Lewis is basically saying, and he would distill this down to, either he was a liar, he was just, Jesus was full of lies. All things that he said and did were lies. Or he was just a madman, he was a lunatic. Or maybe he was possibly just a legend, he was just a, they made them all up. Or he is who he said he is and did what he said he did. And he is Lord. He is the Son of God. It can't be all of them. You have to choose one of these. Either he is who he claimed to be or he's something else. And to be saved, we must confess. We must believe that he is that very thing. He is Lord. He's king. He's God. So who he is and what he did, God raised him from the dead. You may ask, what, what about believing on the cross? He, Paul just talks about the resurrection. What he did on Good Friday was necessary, but his resurrection was proof that his saving work was sufficient and complete. It, it, was, like, it was the package deal to say that we believe on his resurrection is to say, I believe in all that he has done. If I came home with keys to a brand new car, a really fancy, expensive one, and my wife would freak out. You would assume and believe that I had to go through all the stuff in order to get that car, haggling with the sales guy, my credit approval, down payment, insurance, all of those things, because I there have the car and I have the keys, that all of that happens. Jesus' resurrection says the keys are secured. All that had to be done in his life and death and resurrection was complete, was necessary, was accepted. So to believe on what Jesus did in his resurrection is to trust all his perfect life and all that he did in his sacrificial death in order to save. So we believe in God, Paul writes in Romans earlier in chapter 4, who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification or to be made righteous. So delivered up, suffered on the cross for our sins, and raised, proving his righteous sacrifice was acceptable. He accomplished what he had set out to do, to atone for our sins and to offer his perfect life for justification, for righteousness. No mere human can do this. And if this did not happen, if the resurrection did not happen, if he did not rise, then Paul would say to the Corinthian church, and we, we, we of all people should be pitied. His saving mission was not completed. He writes this 
in 1 Corinthians, if Christ was not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. All that we're doing in here, all that we're doing right now is, is vanity. It's worthless. But if, and if Christ was not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But here's the truth. Jesus was resurrected from the dead, meaning all his life and his death and resurrection has been accomplished and is secured salvation for us. It did because he is Lord. It proves that he is Lord and he has power over sin. It proves that he has the power over death. It proves that he has power over Satan. It proves that his righteous life was acceptable. Mission accomplished. Faith that makes us righteous, that saves, must believe Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. So, the Easter message is about what Jesus did in his life and death and resurrection, and it, is, it comes to us as a message to respond to, meaning we, we all have to respond to this news. Because the word is near, what Jesus has done, each person must respond to this truth. And what is this response? Verse 9, let's fill this out now. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Confession and belief. Belief and confession. This, this repetition is an example of, of Hebrew parallelism in this text. It, it's echoing and restating the same truth in verses 9 and 10. Remember what we read earlier. The word, the gospel is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. Notice how those connect. Confession out of our mouth and and belief in our hearts. Nothing is much more closer for you than your mouth and your heart. It is, it is right there. The Bible actually speaks about our heart as being the, the very thing of us, the, the, the thisness of us, the, our self, who we really are, all our desiring, all of our willing, the motivation center of who we are. It comes from our heart. Jesus would say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Meaning what's in there is what comes out. What we truly have in us will make its way in confession and in our life. Meaning they're connected. To confess truly is to confess what is in our heart. To what is in our heart must truly be confessed. This confession and believing isn't just knowing facts and information. Kids, I want to help, help answer this question with me. Does Satan believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Kind of a tricky one. Does Satan believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Any bold answers? Here's some yeses and some noes. Well, G Jesus is the Son of God, and Satan, we see demons actually in the New Testament, acknowledge that Jesus is God's son. Satan knows the facts that Jesus died and, and was on the cross and is alive. The difference is that there is no active faith, no belief upon Jesus as Christ, the Savior and Lord, which brings salvation. That his life and death and resurrection is needed for salvation. So we cannot just simply have facts and information it is faith upon that reality of what he's done that saves. I mentioned my indoor rock climbing events 
was interesting and still lingering. I climbed up with what was this automatic belaying system. If you ever climb, you know what belaying, right? It's the guy who, or somebody who usually has the rope to make sure if you fall, you don't die. A lot of trust in that person. Well, I'm trusting myself into this orb, this round thing up in the, the ceiling, that as I climbed, it was tense, it, there was tension, and I, when I got to the top, all I was supposed to do is just lay back and let go. Now, if you ever done something like that, your brain says let go, but your hand won't let go. I had trouble letting go, entrusting myself to this contraption up in the air. But it was a picture, it's a picture of faith. You must cast all of yourself on Jesus Christ. You can't keep holding on to yourself or your own world or your own works or your own things. To believe and to confess, they're, they're not two different actions, but one movement of absolute faith, full weight of your life, letting go of yourself and your own works and your own attempts, and you cast yourself on Jesus. You let go of your control and the lordship of your life, and you let all the lordship of Jesus reign in your life. You turn from your rebellious hearts and ways and your own self-efforts to make yourself right before God, and you trust fully on Jesus, on his death and his resurrection for forgiveness and for relationship with him. And who is this for? Who, who is this opportunity for? Religious people, good people, those with perfect pasts, perfect records, born into the right family. No, it is, as we mentioned earlier, it is for all people who need saving. Look at Verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who would call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. All who call on him. No distinction. Age, classes, gender, backgrounds, no merit or works, nothing I have done or have done, Jesus comes and brings this offer to us. He actually brought this work of salvation, an opportunity for sinners, when he knew we were a mess. Romans 5 tells us God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the invitation that comes for those who would believe, he's not worried about a distinction. He's making this offer for all who would believe. God's plan of salvation is to show his vast mercy and love and grace for all those who don't deserve it, who can't save themselves, who cannot climb up, who cannot cross the chasm, who cannot atone by going down enough. So salvation is beyond us, and it is not in us, but it is in Jesus it is in Jesus. That's why Jesus came down. It's why Jesus came near. It's why Jesus lived a perfect life. It's why he obeyed the laws perfectly. It's why he went down into death to pay for the penalty of sin. And why he went down into the grave. And why he rose up victorious as a resurrected king. With all power to save. So we must respond to this news. We must respond to this news of Jesus. It's not an option. It's, it's, we cannot be indifferent to this. So as this text 
communicates an offer for all those who believe. I want to make that offer for you today. Do you believe? Are you trusting on Jesus as Lord and what he has done in his life, death, and resurrection for your salvation? If you sense a pricking in your heart of this is something going on in your life, hear God's loving invitation to you today. Don't push that away. Move towards him. Call on him today so that you can be saved. We're saved because he is Lord and because of his life, death, and resurrection. And we are saved by faith on his life, death, and resurrection. And when we believe and we confess and we are saved, God gives us his presence, the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And he creates in us a desire then to follow his commands. What we saw back in Deuteronomy chapter 30 that pointed to that he does something in our hearts that we will love the Lord our God and we will live. That's what he wants us to do, to be able to love him back and live for him and love others. The Lord is the king of riches. I love how our passage points to the thing that he offers for us. He bestows his riches on all of those who call on him. He pours out all his riches, all his riches is love and grace and mercy and relationship and all who trust on him, he takes away their shame. All who believe will never be put to shame because we are not made righteous by our own works. We're not keeping ourselves righteous by what we do. We're clothed in his perfect life. And if we have his perfect life, we don't have to hang our head in shame. That's what shame does. Shame causes us to hang our head Shame will, will maybe tempt us to feel like we, we have to walk a high wire and somehow balance perfection, fearing falling or being lost. And the gospel comes to us and says, I'm the one keeping you. My power is keeping you. My love is keeping you. My perfect life is for you. So we don't deserve salvation. We cannot earn salvation. Salvation is possible by the very fact that we, can, we deny our ability to do it and we have confidence in the one who has done it for us. Someone shared this quote with me recently from Martin Luther and simply says, is it not wonderful news to believe that salvation lies outside of ourselves? Isn't that wonderful news? Isn't that wonderful news that, that this morning on Easter we, we, we don't, Try to go up. We don't have to worry and slave by going down. We look to the one who's outside of us, who comes to us, and we get by faith on him. All of the riches bestowed on us by faith in Jesus. The Easter message is about this amazing news, news about Jesus and news that we respond to, news of something that is impossible to save ourselves, that no mere human could do, but by placing our faith on Jesus, the one who did do it, to save sinners, because Jesus came near and did all that we need to be saved so we can know him, we can live for him, we can experience now, in part, God's life and his love, and one day we will forever when we rise to be with him forever. And Paul, in this chapter, he would go on to say in verses 14 and below, how then... Will they call on him whom they have not believed? And, and how will they believe unless somebody goes? I think it's a, a reminder for us believers, Christians in here, that, that this good news that we are celebrating, that we are considering this morning, we, we go with that good news. We need to herald that news. We, are, we live sent to tell people about this good news of what Jesus has done, which we believe on 
and trust on. So what are we to do? We trust on the one who did it all. What is done? We confess Jesus is Lord. We believe in our heart that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and we are saved. This is the good news of Easter. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the good news of Easter. This is good news that we don't just stop and forget this afternoon, later when we've had a wonderful lunch and maybe we're taking a nap. Lord, this is good news that we, we get to remind our hearts of all day. And this is good news that we get to embrace and celebrate tomorrow and good news on Tuesday and, and Wednesday and Thursday and all the way to the next Sunday, Lord. This is good news that we need, not just, not just like a stair step where at the first stair in our journey in Christianity we think about, it's not just the A and then we moved on to other things. This is the A through the Z. This is all the way through. Now, this is the center of all that we need and this is where you have come and said, this is, this is the good news. This is the good news that we need to save. The good news we need to remind our hearts to keep going. The good news in our Christianity 10 years in or on day one. Thank you, Jesus, for being the one who lived, you died, and you rose so that all who put their faith in you can be saved. Every one of us here. Lord, I pray for my friends here. Maybe there's some that are not believing on this news. I pray, Jesus, that you would draw their heart to you. You have come near to them today by your words, and would you let them put their faith and trust on you? There's no distinction, but let them know they don't have to clean themselves up to get right to come to God. Lord, you are the one who makes us right. So let faith come to trust on you. And Lord, for us, who are here, who are Christians, who maybe are 30th or 40th Easter morning, Lord, would you allow this good news to be something that just brings fresh joy and hope and trust that we look away from ourselves. There's no, no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, any pride that's in our heart to think somehow we deserve and earn it, Lord, we, we cast it aside and we fall at your feet and we worship. Lord, it is truly truly good news to know that we believe that salvation lies outside of ourselves, and it is in you, Savior. To you be all the glory for our good and joy, Lord. Let that increase. Amen.